read the passage for us. Um, and so I just, you know, so Blake and Caden have been giving me a hard time about how I often talk for like five, ten minutes, and then I'm like, all right, we're just going to dive right into the text. Okay, uh, I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm going to heed their, uh, their um, gentle ribbing, and we're going to dive right in. Uh, right? Just, uh, we're just going to start talking about this passage. Because here's the thing. I think we spend our lives, many of us, without thinking about it, without really trying, we spend our lives trying to build our own kingdom. And we wouldn't put it that way. We wouldn't say it like that. We would never articulate it like, yeah, I'm just building my own kingdom over here. Maybe somebody would, but I don't think most of us would probably articulate it that way. Yet I think that's exactly what many of us do. We may not call it kingdom building. Instead, we call it accumulating things. We call it uh, accumulating experiences. We call it accumulating wealth. We call it, or maybe a bit nicer way, is accumulating equity. Right? And we are building and building a life of comfort and a life of ease. Now here's the difficulty when we get into this passage. Because we don't want to explain away Jesus' words. But yet I also want to be nuanced about this. Is it wrong for us to save for retirement? I don't, I don't think so, probably. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe we'll sit with Jesus' words a little longer and I'll change my mind, but I don't think so. I don't think it's wrong to be responsible with the gifts that God has given us, with the things that he has entrusted to us, right? Because we read parables of Jesus where he talks about um, a man being given a certain amount of money and him investing it for the man and, you know, all this anyway. But to say, we just need to be careful. Because I think it's very easy for it to become our own kingdom building where the end goal really is our comfort and our happiness. And we put our eggs into that basket. If I have enough experiences, if I have enough equity, if I have enough, you know, of this or that or the other thing then I will feel comfortable and satisfied and happy, right? And I think, if I'm just being honest, I can fall into that trap just as easy as anybody. And I think that is the trap that so many of us, even as Christians, we're tempted to fall into, and even there maybe even to baptize it almost as something spiritual or, or holy, and on top of that, I don't think it's just about building our own kingdom. You know, again, I think not everything in our world is bad. I think there is a lot of times a feeling like I need to be a good person, right? And so we, we try our best to be a good person, to live by the golden rule, like the, right? to treat other people as we would want to be treated. And we go about our lives and we, um, you know, we're, we're kind to other people, we're nice to other people, right? And I think and so I think it's, it's one of those things that we can, we can be a nice person, we can be building a life, and, and, and yet not really be living for the kingdom of God. I think this is what we're going to see 
in the passage. And maybe even there, we can build our lives to a point, because I think all of us, really, in the end, we want some sort of legacy. I don't think most of us go about our lives feeling this pressure like, I have to be rich and I have to be famous, right? I honestly do not think that's where most of us are, right? I mean, look, I, if that were my end goal, I probably would have given up a long time ago, right? I mean, like, look, I know that's not going to be, I'm not going to be rich and I'm not going to be famous. I'm not going to pursue that. And I think probably for most of us, we're settled with that. We're not going to be Tom Cruise. We're not going to be Brad Pitt or, you know, I, I don't know, the thinking of rich Elon Musk or whatever. Like, we're not going to be those people. And we're fine with that. But it doesn't mean we're not kingdom building in our own way. It doesn't mean we're not, we're not, we're not seeking this other thing in our, in our own way. We're not pursuing some life where I think even in the end, we desire for people to think well of us, right? We desire to have comfort and, and, and a certain level of, uh, you know, of things and equity and all this I've talked about. But we also desire for people to look at us and go, you know what? They lived a good life. They're a good person. They're a nice person. And you know what? We can, we can manufacture that. We know people that would never darken the doors of this church who would fit all of those things. And we can be just equally as kind or nice or generous and seeking you know, our, our own kingdom building. But at some point, all of us are going to be confronted with questions in life. I mean, that's the reality, isn't it? Like, all of us are going to be confronted with some level of questions in our life. Maybe all the way at, like, you know, um, I don't know, like, you know, maybe, again, that striving to be a good person. And I, I know many people who would kind of just live with this basic idea that if there is a God, then as long as I'm a good person, he's going to let me in. And for those people, we're always going to end up coming back to the question of how good is good enough? Have I been good enough? Right, that nagging feeling will always be there. Or maybe even for some people, just the question is, is this all there is? Is that what life is all about? Just being a good person, being nice to people, and have, finding my own happiness through experiences and money and goods and things and whatever. Is that all there is? Or maybe for like, you know, like the man in our text. Those moments where those things are not satisfying, we find ourselves asking, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. Now, I also think even as Christians, we come to these times of doubt, these times of difficulty, where maybe with a question we find ourselves asking is not necessarily, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But like, do I trust Jesus? Do I believe that the words of Jesus are the words of life? Am I sure I believe Jesus? Because you know what? This thing over here looks pretty nice. And we come back to that temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. Like, does God really love you? Is he just keeping this from you because he doesn't really want you to be happy? He doesn't really want you to know everything, right? We come to that and where we go, do I really trust Jesus? And so we come to Jesus, and oftentimes what we expect then is a, you know, some sort of a, a grandfatherly hug, or maybe what we expect uh, from Jesus is some sort of a nice platitude, you know, a, a, you know a, a pat on the back and a keep up the good work. And then we come to this passage and we find the words of Jesus, and it's a kick in the teeth. Right? It's not what we expect, 
but it is what we need. And that's the wonderful thing about Jesus. Oftentimes, he doesn't give us what, he, what we expect him to do. Instead, he gives us what we need, what we need to hear. And so by the end of this passage, really, I think we're left with kind of two difficult options. The first one is this, be blessed by Jesus. The second one is walk away sad. And you're like, but that doesn't really, I mean, like when you put it that way, right? Like that doesn't seem like a hard, like a, like a hard thing, right? Either be blessed by Jesus or walk away sad. Which would you choose? You know what I mean? Like when you put it that way, it doesn't sound like a very hard, difficult option, right? But I think it's harder than we think. And I think Jesus actually acknowledges that, right? Because in the passage, he says, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, hold on, Jesus. Very hard. Why is it very hard? Why so hard? And here's kind of where we're going today. Is that we are called to receive the kingdom. Right? Jesus says you need to receive the kingdom. Right? He doesn't say here's all the ways you need to work for the kingdom. He says receive the kingdom. But in order to receive the kingdom, that means I've got to get rid of the stuff that is blocking the way to the kingdom. Those things that stand in the way between me and Jesus. And those things are going to be hard to root out. And in fact, when we come to the end, what we're going to find out is the only way we root those out is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but with God it is possible. So there you go. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, here is the big idea, the big picture that we are working with this morning. It is this, we have got to ruthlessly get rid of the things that stand in the way of us receiving the kingdom as a gift. And that is only possible through the work of Jesus. So there you go, big picture. You can tune out now, go to sleep, that's fine. But I will see you, because there's not that many of us. Um, <laughs> all right? So with that said, like, let's, let's start walking through the text. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through the text slowly here. And then we're going to kind of get to the big picture again and talk about it. All right. So let's look at the text specifically. So let's look at this first uh, section, right? It says, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. Now, here's an interesting, I, okay, right. We've got the disciples, right? And they're scolding these parents for bringing kids to Jesus. Stop it. Stop it. But what the text actually indicates is, right, it says, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus. But if you're looking in the Greek, what it actually says is they just kept doing it. They kept doing it. It's as if the disciples are saying, stop. And everybody's like, whatever. Like, you know, I'm bringing my kid to Jesus. And people just kept coming and doing it and going more and more. No matter how much the disciples said, stop. It's like nobody paid any attention, <laughs> right? Because Jesus wasn't saying stop. So I don't care really who you are. I'm bringing my kid to Jesus, right? That's the picture that we get in the story. It's like the disciples are trying to stop them. They're trying to rebuke them. But the parents are like, yeah, forget you. I'm bringing my kid to Jesus. And when Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry, okay? And this word angry can be translated indignant, right? But literally, what it means is much grief. So you could also translate it, Jesus felt a deep inner pain for their words. 
a deep inner pain by their words. Now, do you think the disciples intended to cause Jesus great inner pain? I don't think so. But that's what happens. Um, I actually had a friend who made it all the way nearly to the final, like, to get onto American Idol. Like, he made it through the whole, like, the whole thing. And he got to the spot where he was, like, singing for, for people. He's an incredible singer, by the way. And I don't think anybody would ever question that. Um, but he said as he was, like, singing, the one guy was just like, oh, stop. And he was like, what is that? It's painful. And he said all he could think to say was, I never meant to cause you pain. Like, it was never my intention to cause you pain. And I just picture, like, a scenario with the disciples where Jesus just gets mad, and he's, like, he is, like, in pain, and he's, like, will you stop it? You know, and, like, I just picture Peter being, like, it was never my intention to cause you pain. You know, like, that was, like, but anyway, okay, sorry, there's my imagination. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. The first thing we need to do is rid ourselves of our romantic picture of children. Right? Because we love our kids. All of us who have them. We love our kids. We even love other people's kids, right? You know, I mean, like, our girls never want for being held. There are plenty of people in this church that love our kids, right? And I experienced that. Not so in the ancient world. All right? I mean, I'm sure, like, you know, we don't even have to go that far back to, you know, hear things like children should be seen and not heard and, and you know, things like that, right? Okay, well, let's just keep walking that back a little bit further. Children were not respected at all in the ancient world. Parents, sure, they love their kids, that's fine. They just didn't love other people's kids. And they didn't want to have anything to do with other people's kids, and other people's kids should stay out of their way. Right? And even there, parents didn't necessarily, you know, put the same amount of attention and honor and, and, and things towards their own children that maybe we would. The ancient world didn't have this romantic notion of children. Because children added nothing to a family's economy, it added nothing to their honor. And so in the Greco-Roman world, and this is true, if you didn't want your kid, you could just leave him out to die. And then there were these really nice people who would come along and take up the kids and turn them into gladiators or slaves or things like that. Or worse, you know. So, so right? What I'm getting at is this. The ancient world was not a place that loved children and deeply respected them and put a lot of value into kids, they were expendable. All right? So when Jesus says this, we have to look at it through that lens, right? Jesus is giving an amount of value to kids that was unheard of, unprecedented, okay? But we also have to understand that for the people around Jesus, this like saying, get away, get these kids away from Jesus seemed like a completely normal and acceptable thing to do. So what is it about kids that, why would Jesus say that you need to receive the kingdom of God like a kid, like a child, or, or that's it, or you won't get into the kingdom of God? Right? Why does he say anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it? Many people have speculated it's because, you know, kids are just... Uh, 
know, they have a, a, a beautiful naivety about them, right? Or they just are naturally trusting. Or, um, you know, there's an innocence about children or, or something like that. Many people have speculated these things, but the problem is, is that kids can also be deceitful. Kids can also be really selfish. Kids can be super rude, right? I mean, we've all run into kids like that, certainly not our own, of course, but, you know, we've all run into kids like that. At times, kids are human beings. They are not a, like these perfect angelic beings. As wonderful as they are and as much as we love them, kids can be just as awful as they are wonderful, right? Like, because they're people. So I don't think that's it. What is it, then, about children? I think if we come back to this Greco-Roman notion of kids as worthless, it helps us to understand what Jesus is saying. That when we come to God with nothing, like a kid, what did a kid have to offer in the Greco-Roman world? Absolutely nothing. And then if we want to be a part of the kingdom of God, that's how we come too. Just like a kid. Holding out nothing. And receiving everything. Right? Think about that. Right? The dependence that children have. Right? They cannot feed themselves, though maybe the older ones think they can. Um, they cannot take care of themselves. They are wholly dependent on their parents. Right? Think about everything that a child owns. How much of it, you know, again, I'm thinking of younger children, how much of it did they earn? Zero. Right? It's a gift from the parents. And that when we come to Jesus, we receive the kingdom like those, like those children. You don't earn it. Don't deserve it. But God knows what you need and he gives it to you. Just like a really good parent would with a child. And so we receive the kingdom of God like a child. We come to God with nothing. Holding out an empty hand. And we receive the kingdom. All right? Jesus ends up blessing the invisible people in the society and demonstrates that people have value and worth inherently, not because of what they bring to the table. And in a world that is very utilitarian, that is good news. Right? In a world that measures who we are by the things that we do, to just have inherent worth and dignity that Jesus gives to these children, that's incredible. Like, think about it. Like, how often when somebody, you know, asks you, like, oh, who, you know, sorry, what's your name? What's the next question? What do you do? Right? We assign often value based on what people do. But Jesus doesn't work that way. And we're going to find that out big time then as we continue on. Right? So as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, so he's, he's blessed all of these kids. Eventually the, the, you know, the tap turns off of all the children flowing to Jesus. Right? So Jesus, he walks away and begins walking towards Jerusalem. And Luke pointed this out before, that from now on, Jesus is slowly on his way to Jerusalem to do what? To die 
and to raise from the dead. All right, and here we get Mark making that indication. Jesus is slowly making his way to Jerusalem. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You guys, like, think about the desperation of this man. Like, he's rich. And in that day, rich people didn't run. Do rich people still run except for, you know, like to keep in shape? I don't know. But like, he runs to Jesus. And he doesn't just, you know, look Jesus square in the eyes and say, tell, tell me what I need to do. Like, right? No. He falls down on his knees and he says, Jesus, tell me what I must do. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. All right. Let's take a look at these commandments. Why does Jesus ask him this? Like, right, Jesus mentions all of these commandments. What I find interesting is every one of these commandments was something he could have measured. He could have measured. He could have said, yeah, okay, no problem. I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. Right, because each one of these commandments deals with what? Sorry, it's okay. Our relationship with other people. None of these actually directly deal with our relationship with God, right? So Jesus later is going to say that the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Every one of these is a measurable, quantifiable thing that shows how well he's done at loving his neighbor. And you know what he says? No problem. I've done it all. And before we start thinking, Wow, that guy's really arrogant. Do you know what? Paul says the same thing. Paul says, when it comes to the commandments, I was faultless. Okay? Now, what we have to understand is that when he says this, he doesn't mean he's never, ever messed up in his entire life, but that the, the trajectory of his life, when he looks at his life, he says, you know what? I am this kind of person. I am a person that does not steal. Right? I am the kind of person that does not testify falsely. I am the kind of person that honors my father and mother. And so, we find that this man has all the love your neighbor as yourself commandments down. But here's where Jesus goes with this. Because he's like, that's great. That's so good. But what we're about to find out then is that he lacks all of the love. He lacks the love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength commands. And I think it's one of those things. How many people do we know like that? I'd say we probably know a lot of people like that. A lot of people who do not love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength but man, they love their neighbor. And I think it's important that we realize that Jesus says, like, look, that's not good enough, buddy. That's great. I'm glad you do that. 
But that's not enough. And I think even as Christians, like people that we know like that, we can honor that and say, look, that is great. But guess what? They still need Jesus. Those people still need Jesus. As good of a neighbor as they may be, they still need Jesus. And even there, we can be tempted to measure how much we love Jesus by the way we love our neighbors. But loving our neighbors is not enough for you and me either. Sure, it's a great sign, it's a good marker and an indicator, but it is not the end-all be-all for how we love Jesus. It is an important part of loving Jesus, but it is not all there is. We actually have to love Jesus too, not just be nice to our neighbors. And so, we find then, I just think about you know, here a few weeks ago, in Mark 8, 36, where Jesus says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? And that's what we find with this guy. He has made a lot of money, right? It says he's rich. He's made a lot of money. And he's also a nice guy. <laughs> like, that's the thing. He's a guy you want to be neighbors with. He has money and he, takes, he treats people well. Why wouldn't you want to be neighbors with this guy? I'd take him as my neighbor. Like, that'd be wonderful. He'd be a great neighbor. But what is it to profit a man to gain all of that stuff and to forfeit his soul? And this is why we find Jesus then looking at the man. This is verse 21. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done he told him. Go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. First thing I think we need to see is that Jesus loved this man. Do you know this is the only place in Mark where it ever says that Jesus loved somebody? That should probably cause us, <laughs> cause us to think. Now, there are other places in the Bible where it says that Jesus loved people, but this is the only place in Mark where it actually specifically says Jesus loved that person. Which I think is really interesting. And it uses the phrase agapeo. Okay? Now, the reason I bring that up is because this is a type of love when, when the Bible uses this word, and it's a common word that the Bible uses for love it carries this meaning of like a self-giving love, a compassionate love, a doing what is best for the other person type of love. And this is the love that Jesus shows this man, right? This is not a mushy feeling love, although Jesus feels a deep love for this man, but the love that he feels is a deep, I want what is best for you. And as we get ready to dive into these things that Jesus, is a, Jesus says to this man, I think it's really important that we start there. Whatever Jesus is about to say to this man, whatever Jesus is telling this man is not because he wants to kill all of his fun, ruin his fun, kill his joy, whatever. It's because he loves him. Everything that Jesus is about to say comes from his love for this man. I want you. You are here at my feet. You want to follow me. I want you to follow me. Here's what you need to do. All right, so this is important. This is really important. I think it can be really easy for you and me to be judgy towards this man. 
well, if I had all that money, I wouldn't act like that. Or if I had this or that. You know, like it can be easy. Because like I said, we want to excuse ourselves from this text. Because what Jesus says is really hard. And so we can get judgy. Well, thank goodness I'm not like that guy. But Jesus loved this man. His commandment is not a heavy burden. It is an easy yoke. And that is hard for us to see, isn't it? It is hard for us to read those words and say, this is an easy burden and a, you know, this is a light burden and an easy yoke. My burden is easy, my yoke is light. There we go, we'll get the passage, right? Those are Jesus' very words. When he says, he goes, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And we read this passage and we go, well, hold on, Jesus. That doesn't seem very easy or light. That's intense. But we have to actually change our perspective and stop seeing the accumulation of things, of money, of wealth, of status as what is really going to make our lives light and easy. And say that actually maybe Jesus knows something that you and I do not intuitively know. So Jesus is offering this man freedom from the slavery that comes with a love of money and accumulation. And so he says to the man, there is still one thing you haven't done. Or in like if you're reading the ESV, it says, one thing you lack. I like that. One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess. This reminds me of what I spoke on a couple weeks ago, right? Where Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. Because it's worth it. And I think what Jesus is saying here then is something very similar. If your money, your wealth, if whatever it is, is standing in the way of you and Jesus, get rid of it. Right? If your wealth is standing in your way, burn it up. Get rid of it. Because it's not worth it. Now, just for context, here's the easy thing to do. Right? When we're reading about somebody who's wealthy. We go, yep, those rich people. Those rich people, they're always greedy, keeping for themselves. Here's the thing, interestingly, I read this week. from uh, It's a report from Credit Suisse that says that if your assets altogether are worth more than 100 grand, okay, that includes your, your vehicle, any money you might have in the bank, your salary, your, you know, everything you own, if it accumulates and it masses up to more than, more than 100,000, congratulations, you are now in the top 12% of the wealthiest people in the world. Which means it's really easy then for, you know, 88% of the world to look up at you and go, look what those people do with their money. All right? Even there, if you make more than, if you have more than 10,000, more than 10,000, then you are now wealthier than 53% of the population, population of the world. Okay? So here's what I'm saying. It's really easy to always look up. It's a lot more uncomfortable to look down and realize, actually, I have a lot more money than I think I do. Okay? So there we go. That's just my way of saying this applies to us too. Um, right? So... Jesus says to him, still one thing you lack, or you haven't done, go and sell your possessions. But this guy, did he lack anything, right? 
He didn't lack anything, right? I think what we see is that because he lacked for nothing, he actually lacked for everything. Because he assumed he had it all. He assumed he had it all. And I love this. Uh, here's our first slide of the day. I love this, uh, this quote from David Garland. Oh, sorry. That was our second slide of the day. I love this quote from David Garland. People in our culture have plenty to live on. People in our culture have plenty to live on, but little to live for. And I was like, oof. I think that's true. I mean, in Ireland, isn't that true? Most people you know have plenty to live on. Now, we may complain about the prices of rent. We may complain about how food prices are rising. We may complain about how difficult it is to buy a house. No, no, of course, that's not me. But like we, you know, we may make all of these complaints, right? But at the end of the day, for the most part, people in our culture have plenty. I have plenty. But without Jesus, what we find is that people have little to live for. And that's why I think we have such high levels of anxiety, of depression. People are struggling. And when people start struggling financially, if you've put your hope and worth in that, now you're really, you're really in trouble. When you can't even afford to shop at Aldi anymore, you've got to start eating more rice and beans and things like that, right? You know, like all of a sudden it, it puts the pressure on. Because we have little to live for. It's interesting, back in somewhere around AD 100, the Roman satirist Juvenal, what a name, Juvenal. Anyway, he observed in his time, he said this, majestic, mighty wealth is the holiest of our gods. And I dare say that things haven't changed a whole lot since then because money will buy a certain level of comfort that allows us to go about our days not think about the things of life that really matter, right? But then all of a sudden we get confronted with death or we get confronted with grief or pain or suffering or stress or anxiety. And we realize that maybe there's something we're lacking. Maybe even as Christians, we realize, do you know what? I have allowed my relationship with Christ to drift. I've started focusing on other things that I've felt like are more important. Or maybe if we don't know Jesus at all, it's like we come to those moments and, and, and this could be you, this could be your friends, this could be somebody. We know people. Then they come to these moments where now they're at the end of their rope. I don't know what to do because money can't solve the fact that my spouse just died. Or money can't solve the fact that a good friend of mine just died. Like money cannot solve the, the end of my relationship. Or that relationship can't solve my money problems or whatever because they don't even have a job. They're like sucking all the money from me or whatever. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden we realize that there is something I am missing, something that lacks. And whether that's somebody who is so far from Jesus that you just don't even know what it is or whether it's those of us who are Christians that do know what it is and we go, it's those moments where we go, oh goodness. Look at where I've come, where, I've, where I am at. It's in these times that that dull pain that often we live with, that we're largely able to ignore, that whole, like, there must be something more, all of a sudden becomes an acute pain that we can't get rid of. And guys, I want to say to you, like, as, if, like, as followers of Jesus, that's a good thing. When we feel that, right, that disconnect, like, I have been there in my life where all of a sudden I was like, do you know what? I am missing out on deep relationship with Jesus. Like, I am not satisfied with how well I know Jesus. I want to know him better. 
And it's those moments where we have a chance to reassess and go, what do I need to change in my life so that I can, like, I can get there? I can get to that place. So does that mean I have to sell everything? And that's the big question, isn't it? I don't know if that was on your mind as you're reading the passage. As I'm studying the passage, that's the question I'm asking. Like, does this mean I have to sell everything? You know, I mean, again, just to be completely open, like, you know, we're trying to buy a house right now. Does that mean I need to get rid of our down payment? And forget it? Is that what Jesus is asking me to do? Is that what Jesus is asking you to do? Whatever you have. Is Jesus asking you to just get rid of everything you've ever earned? I don't know. I'm not going to stand up here and say, no, he's not. I wanted to. I wanted to stand up here and say, don't worry, Jesus isn't asking you to sell your stuff. Maybe he is. You know better than I do. That's a conversation for you to have with Jesus. Now what I will say is Jesus doesn't ask everyone who follows him to sell everything they own. For instance, Zacchaeus. Right? But what do we see in Zacchaeus? He completely gets rid of that love for money, doesn't he? When he realizes he's cheated people, what does he do? He goes and makes it right. He gets rid of half of like everything that he owns. But Jesus doesn't say, you have to get rid of everything. Right? That work has been done in him, that deep work. So Jesus also says to the rich man, follow me. And I think this is important. He tells that rich man to go sell everything and then to follow me. Here's the thing. I don't know whether Jesus is asking you to sell all of your possessions. At this point, I don't feel like Jesus is asking me to go get rid of everything I've ever owned. I don't. But Jesus is calling us to follow him. And he's calling us to get rid of anything that would stand in the way of following him. When Jesus says, follow me, it's this idea of repenting, of turning, and following him on the path that he is leading. That's actually kind of what the Greek word indicates there. It's like a path, like following somebody on a path, right? Jesus is saying, right, there's a narrow path. Follow me on it. Wherever that leads, whatever it costs, whatever it takes, follow me on that path. And so the question really that we need to be asking is not just, does this mean I have to sell everything, but rather, is there anything standing in the way of my apprenticeship to Jesus? And my guess, my hunch would be, for every single one of us in this room, the answer is yes. There is probably something I'm holding on to. Probably something I'm going, I'm not going to give that up. I'll do all of this. I'll come to church. I'll read my Bible. I'll say my prayers. Like, but not that. And you know what? For most of us, I think oftentimes, that lies hidden away. We don't notice it because we're really good at justifying what we want to do. And so it is asking the Spirit to do that work in us, to reveal to us what are the things that stand in the way of me and peace with God and really, really knowing Him deeply. What stands in the way of me in the kingdom of God? What is it that would cause me to walk away sad? <laughs> and then what we find is the disciples don't know what to do with this. <laughs> they don't know what to do with Jesus' words. And neither do we, a lot of times. And I love this as Jesus refers to the disciples as little children. 
right? So here's what it says. Jesus looked at the disciples and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. I love how Jesus refers to the disciples as little children. We've already noticed, right, Jesus has talked about little kids coming to the kingdom of God, and here Jesus refers to his disciples as little children. They are the ones who have accepted the kingdom. You know, again, we give the disciples a hard time a lot. But Jesus, when, when Peter says, um, we've given up everything to follow you, Jesus doesn't say, well, hold on a second, buddy. He goes, yeah, you have, right? Verse 29, yes, Jesus replied. He agrees with them. You see, we can give the disciples a hard time. But I think what we see is oftentimes them acting like kids, like spiritual children. Think about the questions they ask, the dumb stuff they do. But here's the thing. They have left everything to follow Jesus. They've given up being a tax collector, which made a whole lot of money. They've given up being fishermen, which is a nice middle-class comfortable job. They're out, they have no place to live right now. They're just out wandering around, relying on Jesus for their food, relying on Jesus for their shelter, relying on Jesus for everything. The disciples have accepted the kingdom of God like a child. I love it. Like, here's an example, guys. The disciples have said, do you know what? We'll give up everything and we'll follow Jesus. And Jesus doesn't shame them for saying that. Jesus goes, yes, you have. I acknowledge that. You've done it. Now keep doing it, but you've done it. Right? But they find themselves then confused by Jesus' words. They're difficult words. And Jesus then says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is idiom. Okay? Just to be clear, there was no gate this Mythbusters here. There was no gate in, uh, in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, okay, where camels could just kind of barely crawl through. That's something people have said in the past. There is absolutely no evidence for that. But you know what? We all use idioms to say that something is next to impossible, right? Like, oh yeah, I'll do that when hell freezes over, <laughs> right? Or, like, or to say, like, do you know what? Like Jesus could have said, like, you know, if he was in our day, he might have said something like... Um, do you know, like, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. That, that, well, we're not meant to go, well, you know what? There was a farmer around Jesus' day that had a haystack, and he kept needles in them. And, like, no, it's like, no, you're missing the point. Jesus is going, it's impossible, right? Or, like, you know, a snowball's chance in hell. Like, there's all these different phrases, right, we have in, in English that are similar to what Jesus is doing here. He's just saying, guys, it's like impossible, okay? 
impossible. And he says how hard it is then for anyone to enter the kingdom. It is hard for people with wealth to enter the kingdom, but it is not just people with wealth. It's hard for anyone because money is not neutral or harmless because with it comes all kinds of temptations and so too without it because then we're tempted to judge everybody who has it right? Money is not neutral. I'm just going to leave that there. I'm going to, like, we can let that bomb explode later, but I'm just going to say money is not a neutral tool. Jesus says money is the root of all kinds of evil because it holds a power and a sway. Sure, can money be used for good? Yes, absolutely. But it has the ability to warp people. I don't think money is neutral or harmless. I think we have to be really careful with it, and I think Jesus would, would agree. And so I think this passage should make us uncomfortable. We shouldn't try and wiggle out of Jesus' words here, but rather think about them, let them sit, simmer, marinate, work on us, and allow the Spirit to speak to us in the specific places. Where are we the rich young man. Where are we, that guy? What are we keeping for ourselves? Now, we're, we're nearly there. But I do want to do something because I think this is important. Here's, here's uh, something that I, I found um, in my life. As I grew up in a church where we were always told it's important to read the Bible. And you're in a church now where we're going to say it's important to read your Bible. But I was never actually taught how. Okay, so just really quickly. I just wanted to do this really quickly. Like, here's just a, an exercise. And, like, let's take this passage, for instance, and how to read it. So there's the whole passage. One of the things I think is really important that we do is we start looking for key words that show up. Like, like for instance, these are two separate events. What connects them? First thing I think we see is this. Kingdom of God shows up a whole lot of times. So when you're doing your Bible study, whether you want to do this in, in your Bible, like your physical Bible, or whether you want to do this, like, you know, put it on a Word document or something like that and do it, this could be a really helpful way to start allowing Jesus' words to speak to you and to see the context and to see the, see the passage. So we start looking for words like kingdom of God. We notice it shows up a lot in both passages. When you look at the size of those passages and how many times it appears. But that's not the only thing that we see. We find children three times. Two in the above passage where Jesus is literally talking about children and one where Jesus is talking to the disciples and he calls them a child. We start to go, hmm, maybe there's a connection here. So now we're starting to say, hold on, we've talked about children and the kingdom of God. He calls them children as he's talking about the kingdom of God. Perhaps we can find some connection between these two passages. And then we go, oh, hold on. He mentions eternal life at the beginning of that story about the rich young man who asked, where can I find eternal life? And then we find Jesus saying, and, the, and in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. So he answers actually the question about eternal life, right? And we see Jesus talking about, follow me. And the disciples have said, we will follow you, right? So we have this idea of following, right? And now all of a sudden, what begins to show up even is a, a pattern, what is called a chiism, not that you really need to know that word, but that is the word, and, and you find this a lot in the Bible. And it looks like this. 
We find a question about eternal life in verse 17 in the beginning of this story about the rich young man. And we find Jesus answered the question in verse 30. Sandwiched in between that, we find a rich man who cannot leave his possessions and follow. And we find the disciples who have left their possessions and followed. Do you see how all of a sudden it's bringing us to the middle of the passage? And it's going to put an emphasis on this. Jesus' explanation to the disciples and their reaction twice. So when you go back and you look at this, you start to notice this pattern. Like, hold on, we've seen these words show up. Eternal life, eternal life, following, following. And then we go, hmm, maybe, maybe Mark has written it this way on purpose. Maybe Jesus said it this way on purpose, right? Okay, this is a common way that people in the Bible wrote. All right, so you will see this a lot. Okay, so just helpful Bible study note for you there. And that's how I studied the passage, how I came to the conclusions that I came. And so it's one of those, hopefully, that was free, just a helpful Bible study tip. All right, that was, uh, we've been talking about a lot of heavy stuff. I was like, take a breather. All right, let's come to the end. Let's, let's finish this off. So when we bring these two texts together, when we bring these two passages together, and we can even, there you go, when we bring these two passages together, it holds out a vision of the kingdom that is fundamentally different from the systems and the kingdoms of the world that we are used to. Right? So, hold on. I'll go back because I do have a slide for that. There it is. You and I enter the kingdom like kids. That's what Jesus says. We don't bring anything to the table. All the possessions that we have are the things that have been given to us by God. They're already his anyway. We tend to think that we've earned them, that we've made them, that we've done it or whatever, but it's all a gift from God. This is how we come to the kingdom, holding nothing. And yet the struggle is that many of us in our minds or accidentally <laughs> tend to view Christianity as this way of earning God's favor or we see wealth as a sign of, of God's approval. But here we see that is just not the way God works. If I can just be a good enough person. So the rich man ends up being a contrast to these children who come to Jesus with nothing. This man has everything, and he walks away with nothing. These kids bring nothing, and they receive blessing. And so just like at the beginning when I said, it's a hard choice do I choose blessing from God or do I walk away sad? It is a hard choice for many of us. It is a difficult thing, a choice we have to make over and over and over. But this message that Jesus brings is good news. As I said, in a utilitarian economy where our worth is measured by what we can bring to the table, it's a shocking idea, yet it is a relief. Wealth does not equal blessing in God's kingdom. And age does not necessarily equal wisdom. In God's kingdom, people of all stations are given dignity, worth, and value. The lowest and the outcast in society is given a place of honor, while those at the top are warned. And they're warned because they're loved as well. No matter how rich or poor you are, you are loved. 
And so in God's kingdom, our worth and our value is not utilitarian, it is inherent. In God's kingdom, there is peace and there is equality. And this is what you and I hold out to the world. In a world that is constantly competing for glory, for wealth, for platform, we hold out that our worth is based on our acceptance in Jesus. And so is theirs. Nothing more, nothing less. God wants to bless you. And so we come back to Jesus' words. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And we would do well to remember this, the good news of the gospel, that you and I come to Jesus with nothing. We receive everything. And as we walk with Jesus, he reveals those places in our lives that are standing in the way between us and him. And we're left with the choice, what are we going to do about it? And the Spirit of God wants to help you root those out of your life, to get rid of them, so that nothing stands in the way between you and the kingdom, between you and Jesus. So, that said, we're going to take communion. And as we prepare to take communion, we remember that good news. That good news that Jesus did whatever it would take so that we could come to him. Right? He went all the way. He was headed towards Jerusalem. And he was headed there to give his life as a ransom for many. So that we don't know the end of the rich young ruler's story. We know that this man walked away sad. But we don't know whether he ever came back. And maybe you and I have at times walked away sad. But that doesn't have to be the end of our story. That is the good news of the gospel. In Christ, you and I come to him with nothing. And we receive everything.